How many of you have heard this song before? Fair number of you. How many of you grew up with this song? Can you just share really quick, just shout out, what does this song make you uh, feel? Like what words come up for you when you hear this song? Faith. Faith. Safe. Forgiveness. Shout it out. Peace. Longing. Anyone else? What emotions does this evoke in you? Comfort, trust. Yeah. We're going to come back to this song in just a minute. That's what that song does, brings up for me comfort. It's like a peace. A rest, his so sweet to trust in Jesus. I think this may help frame a bit of this talk tonight because or today I, I want I want to couch this sermon with with that melody and that refrain. Because there is something about singing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus as a kid. There is something different about singing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus as an adult after you've been through doubt and disillusionment, after you've been through it. Would you stand for the reading of the word? Paul writing to the church in Corinth. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know if uh, this person was thanked yet, but I want to thank Taylor for, for leading worship this morning. Um, did, we, did we do that yet? No, can we just thank Taylor for leading worship? Taylor is, uh, has become a friend of the, of the community, of, of me. She's good friends with many of you know Elizabeth Kelly is one of the leaders in our church, and uh, she did this beautiful house show last night, and just what a gift to have her uh, with us. And um, yeah, go buy all her stuff and listen to all her music and support really good art. Um, Taylor, thank you. 
Uh, I, um, I watched this movie. I don't know why I watched this movie, and I don't know how even when I think of the age that I was, which I'm not ex totally clear on, it probably was high school, I was allowed to watch the movie, or saw the movie Stigmata. Did anyone see the movie Stigmata? Forgive me if I've told this story before. I couldn't remember if I had told this, but it seems appropriate um, uh, to reference B-grade horror films in a sermon. But for whatever reason, I was really compelled by this movie, mostly because of the what was the plot, um, but was just sort of the vehicle for all of the carnage. So if you're not familiar with what a stigmata is, I don't even know all the ins and outs, uh, but basically this idea of you can manifest, and there are these stories of supernatural manifestation of the wounds of Christ. So people just all of a sudden like feeling the lashes of Christ and the nails in his in his hands, people who, uh, you know, God the Spirit decided to have some sort of spiritual awakening of sorts. Um, I don't know the, the, uh, the truthfulness of it all, but I do know that um, this whole horror film was clearly not representative of the Orthodox Catholic idea of what the stigmata may or may not be. Uh, this was Hollywood's take, which is always dead accurate. And so uh, I get to the end of the movie, and I was, uh, th what I was intrigued by was the subplot of uh, basically, the, uh, there was this, this gospel, the gospel of um, Thomas, that was found in a cave and revealed that we really didn't need the institutional church, which, by the way, even the gospel of St. Thomas does not actually say that. But it sort of like said all these things that were just really um, a threat to the institutional church. And when it was found, the Catholic Church had this very like huge conspiracy to basically hide this. And I was immediately drawn in. I started looking up, like there are the scrolls. This was the cave that they found these scrolls and the Nag Hammadi and all of this stuff. Now, many of you know my dad. I didn't know he was going to be here today. Hi, Dad. Uh, my father, a uh, very thoughtful, uh, intellectual man who has a lot of, a lot of, at least pretends to be, he has a lot of books in his study. Just kidding, Dad. And uh, I remember this moment of going, like, I need to ask my dad. And my dad is not so much of like, a, he's not a, he's not like a, you're not like a joker, Dad. This is really weird to have this conversation with you. You're not much of a joker. You don't like, you don't tend to, you know, like prank or things like that. So it was a rare moment of brilliance where as I go to him and I'm trying to explain all that I had just learned in stigmata and the very cursory research that I had done. And I go, Dad, what's the deal with this gospel of St. Thomas? And the way I remember this is my dad just going like, wow, hold on. And sort of walking slowly over to his bookshelf, kind of looking at the titles as if he's like doing some deep investigative dive. And he reaches up and he pulls a book off the bookshelf. And he goes, Andrew, I have it right here. And I just, in that moment, felt so small <laughs> in the best sort of way. Like, I had just gotten, like, suckered into this whole, this literature that was meant to, like, be hidden and tamped down and not talked about and not addressed and has very, by the way, really good reason that it's not included in the biblical canon for all sorts of good historical uh, readings. Uh, but my goodness, I just went, oh, oh, this isn't quite the conspiracy and this isn't quite the, uh, the whatever that I had thought that it was.
The end of that film literally ends with text on the screen saying the discovery of gospel of St. Thomas. Um, the Catholic Church refuses to recognize this document and considers it heresy. It was like this boogeyman. Today, I, I want to talk about the path of faith. I don't want to talk about it uh, by, in a funny way, by talking about this big, big stigmata. It's an old joke that when the devil was kicked out of the garden, he went into sound systems everywhere. <laughs> that there is this boogeyman, and this boogeyman is, is deconstruction. Just like my faith seemed to fall apart in an instant because of this movie, we are in a moment where memes and TikTok theology are having a sort of effect on many of us. Now, this is not to throw shade at an entire medium. We can obviously get some good information but we all know and we have talked at length about people not paying attention to the algorithms and how what seems to be the dominant thread, and this must be true because it's been shared so many times, I cannot tell you how many times, I mean, I want to say it's, it's almost weekly, I get sent some sort of like infographic meme deconstructing some ethical or theological thing. See, what do you say about this with the church? That is literally one of the most shallow things. This person clearly has not exited their algorithm to read one book, never mind the hundreds of books written about, given whatever subject it may be. That sounds horribly simplistic. But what I simply mean is that we are in a moment right now, like I was sitting on that couch going, oh my gosh, how could this not be true? They wouldn't let a Hollywood film be produced. They wouldn't let that happen with that line like that if this wasn't like some conspiracy. And sure enough, this book that was meant to be hidden, tucked down that no one had, was on my father's bookshelf five feet away from me. Now, it's not just this that is producing this moment of disillusionment and doubt. Any millennials in the room? Do you even know if you are one? I'm barely a millennial. Just holding on. I don't know if I want to. I want to when I want to, and I don't want to when I don't want to. Millennials, you um, came to sort of adulthood, uh, or at least an understanding for most in politics, where you had Obama. Uh, and so whatever you think of Obama's policies, uh, and I've referenced this before, if you remember, most do that I've talked to, remember that moment of watching the inauguration in Chicago and there was this moment like, oh my gosh, everything is going to change. A first African-American president talking about hope. And you had a sort of consensus. You had uh, conservative, moderate Republicans who did not like a lot of his policies, but still were saying, this man is the man for the job. Fascinating moment. Myself at the like, very old age of the millennials remember even the conversation happening within Christianity where within evangelicalism, there were, you don't go for the democratic candidate because of a number of like, key ethical issues. And you were watching people go, yeah, but there's something about the integrity and, what, what, and, and the, the, the prowess and the oratorial skills and, and just all that was being promised. And there was a cultural moment that felt like this could change everything. Basically, you could argue there was a sort of apex of enlightenment where it was like, look, we really are getting better as a society. And what I'm about to say is not about shade specifically at Obama or even necessarily policies or anything like that, but I want to point out that eight years of that um, presidency, not only did it, it, it created a lot of disillusionment amongst millennials about what really could change, but it actually gave birth to then, I don't think anyone can argue, one of the most divisive times in the history of this country in regards to politics. It gave birth to like a celebrity, you know, millionaire 
taking office. It gave birth to a very, very divisive and chaotic moment. This is important from a psychological and a developmental standpoint to realize this is the understanding. Just like many of us are marked by 9-11, many of the millennials, especially younger millennials, are marked by this political shift. Then you had the Capitol riots. I know people who were weeping, who called me distressed. We did a prayer call because in that moment, you just did not know how this thing was going to shake out. Images that have literally never been seen before of people storming the Capitol. Whatever your thoughts on whether they were doing the right thing or the wrong, I don't know. I don't actually care. What I'm trying to point out is that there was an absolute just a disillusionment that then settled into already a disillusioned culture that we could see anything good come from the system. If you were in any way embedded in Christian culture, you saw Ravi Zacharias one of the most revered men of God amongst us. Brilliant mind. Devout Hindu who had become a follower of Jesus. Had, I don't know how many degrees, had engaged in some of the world's, with some of the world's best thinkers to argue for the way of Jesus. And in his passing, it was found out the corruption that was happening in regards to his relationship with women and his abuse of power. For other people who are in a different sector, maybe of the faith or a different stream, you saw somebody who seemed to be making inroads with like popular Hollywood culture in an incredibly progressive city. You had a pastor, Carl Lentz, who was crushing it by all intents and purposes. And we were reminded again that everyone is human as he decided to cheat on his wife in the midst of the pandemic and then revealing just sort of a really unhealthy celebrity culture in his particular congregation in New York. Anyone want to talk about anything else? Vaccine debates? I don't know, masks. <laughs> the existential angst. I'll use this as the last one. Of being able to search for any truth at any time, to get any angle at any time on my phone. We cannot pretend this is not having an effect on us. It is causing most of us to pause, to deconstruct, rethink, shatter what we think about the world, get incredibly exhausted, and then numb out. And the searching for truth and the meaning it, just, it doesn't make it to dad pulling the book off the bookshelf. It's like we're not getting to that moment. We're stuck between me seeing the end of stigmata and going, what on earth? Chasing rabbit trails of conspiracy, half-truths, and never getting to dad going, hey, hey, hey. I actually, you can actually read it for yourself right here. My guess is that most people actually aren't deconstructing in the truest sense of the word, which we're going to get to in a minute. It's a helpful buzzword right now. It's a, it really is. I mean, it's a helpful category. But I think what's really happening is that many are entering into a stage simply of questioning. What is it that you have believed in another period of your life that is no longer working for you? And you're wanting to know what to do with all of this angst. This isn't working for me, or I don't think it's working for me. The version I was handed isn't working to me. What do I do with this? Searching and seeking and questioning, by the way, are beautiful things. Beautiful things. 
They are biblical postures of the heart. And intense seasons of seeking and searching are often brought, are often brought on by doubt and disillusionment. Which, if that's the case, doubt and disillusionment are like the worst reasons to abandon your faith. The worst. They actually present an opportunity. They actually present an invitation to go deeper. And that is what I want to posture to you today. So many don't. So many don't question and search and seek because it's exhausting. How do we even know where to search, etc., etc.? So I, I want to um, I want to pause for a minute here, and I want to um, kind of shift into a little bit of like lecture mode, which I know is really appealing. It's going to make you really perk up. But I, I want to do a little bit of cultural analysis and raise a, a few thoughts for you to consider. Uh, John Westerhoff, who's an American theologian, seminary professor. Uh, developed a model to describe the spiritual development of children. Any of you have taken the parents' cohort, done any workshops with uh, Sarah, you know some of this. Uh, his model identifies four distinct stages of faith and uses the imagery of tree rings to describe how each stage relates to the next. So the tree ring metaphor kind of helps us understand that faith stages are uh, cumulative. The new stage does not progress past the previous one, but encompasses it. Does this make sense? It's the idea of transcend and include. You hit a stage, you don't like graduate from it and move on. You sort of continue to include. You transcend it and you include it. So the first stage in child development, I know you're all so excited about this with all the children that you have. You with me? All right, the experiential stage from zero to six. In this stage, the primary mode of spiritual engagement is experience. That's all you need to know. It's experience. Children in this stage learn by doing. They discover what to do by imitating those closest to them. In terms of the way of Jesus, they experience that as watching the rituals that their parents do and engaging in that. Experiential. Two, from ages 7 to 11, but this age really bleeds well into high school. And again, all of these stages we carry with us eternally, but in terms of a focused place. The affiliative stage. Say affiliative. Just keeping you on it. During the affiliative stage, the primary mode of spiritual engagement is belonging to a community. Basically, this is the mantra. I believe, or because we believe, be, wait. I believe because we believe. There it is. I believe because my people believe. In this stage, the child does continue to imitate the parent's spiritual behavior, but no longer out of pure instinct. There's a growing desire to be like mom and dad, but then towards the back end, it actually moved towards your peer group. I believe because my people believe. You can argue just in terms of like just evolutionary science. This is like the tribal instinct. We want to know who our people are so we are safe. I believe because my people believe. And then you begin to move into the searching stage towards high school. High school students, the primary mode of their spiritual engagement is questioning. In this stage, the child moves from a communal understanding of faith to a personal one. The process of questioning is essential. It becomes like a prerequisite for independent discovery, internalized belief, any kind of mature decision-making. This is the really scary stage for a parent. And even, I know some kids in high school, this is a scary stage. The fear, obviously, is that uh, they're going to lose their faith. All the things they thought they understood, they start to ask questions about. The irony, though, is that shutting down or skipping this questioning 
can also result in a loss of faith later on. And I know this is looking at a few of you. This is some of your story. Questioning is this essential step in the journey to a mature and own faith. The great um, writer and thinker Sarah Cowan Johnson says, uh, writing to parents, she says, Our kids cannot follow Jesus as adults without making an informed, independent decision. So as difficult as it may be to watch our children question things uh, that they've accepted as a given before, or ask questions that we don't know how to answer, we will need to guard ourselves against, the, against fear during this stage. Now, as I mentioned before, the new stage does not progress past the previous one, but again, transcends and includes. And in those high school years, that affiliative stage is still present. Think of why youth groups are so critical in high school. Or whatever cliques you fell in, like any goth kids, any punk rock kids. Is there still an emo? Is that still in high school? There's still emo kids? <laughs> Asking a bunch of 25 year olds. There's always some element kicking around of I believe because my people believe, right? Even now, even as adults. But we should move into the searching stage and on into adulthood, carrying all of these ways. Here's my point in bringing this up. I wonder how many of us never really enter into the searching phase. I wonder how many of us have a sort of stunted adolescence. Like you never, ever, ever like really got there. We haven't allowed ourselves to seek, to seek Many of us who maybe grew up in a Christian culture, instead we, we like had a relationship with God that was mediated through our friends or through a pastor. Eugene Peterson actually says, pastoral work can erode prayer and can erode a genuine encounter with God like nothing else. He writes, quote, people are not comfortable with God in their lives. They prefer something less awesome and more informal. Something in fact, like a pastor. Reassuring, accessible, Easygoing, I hope to be all those things. But people would rather talk to their pastor than to God. So if this stage is marked by I believe because my people believe, what happens when you get new people? If you never really like moved into that searching phase, if you weren't allowed to ask those questions, if that's not something you carry in your heart as actually central to the way of Jesus, which is questioning and seeking and searching what happens if you've stayed stuck in that affiliative stage and then you get new people what happens when you get exposed to new ideas what happens when those new ideas some of them are actually really true did you have a theology that like engaged verses in the bible where paul says look if it's true it's of god i don't care where you found it if it's true it's of god I grew up in an environment, um, and I love that I actually, again, get to honor my, my father here. I grew up in, in an environment where it was okay to ask questions. This is the point in the sermon where I, I, I wish that I like, could give you a story about how I identify growing up in a really restrictive environment where we weren't allowed to doubt and ask questions. So maybe this can just be a little offering of hope or shine a light on the difference between maybe how you and I grew up, some of us an environment where I would come with a question and oftentimes I'd be met with, Andrew, that's a great question. This is what was helpful for me. 
not here's what you need to believe. And it wasn't that my parents were somehow negligent in helping me load the way of Jesus or learn things, but it looked very rabbinical. To use modern educational language, very Socratic. It was, let me ask you a question back and let me draw you in. Here's something that maybe you could read, we could come back and we could talk about it. How many late nights, Dad, did we have? It was like two in the morning and I could tell my dad's just like, I gotta go to bed. And I'm just like, yeah, but what about, but what about, but what about, but what about? Many of us did not have this, did not carry any sort of, um, it's okay. And so then when we encountered truth, it felt like somebody took a brick out of the wall and then the wall came crumbling down. I don't know what to do with this. I saw a meme and it said this about the Christian ethical view and it was really snarky and really smart. And it's been addressed by thousands of years of Christian history, but, 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 but the meme, I don't know how to like think about that any deeper than that and so I'm just gonna go here. If you don't move through the searching phase and embody that and bring it with you, it's hard to figure out how to follow Jesus. Searching is essential to adult-owned faith. The same way that the actions of faith and experience of faith community don't cease to be important in adulthood, neither does genuine searching and seeking. So I want to offer a few frames for you where I think a lot of us are at, or maybe a friend is at, and we'll go back and engage this verse in a moment. Four things. One, I think people, sometimes people are simply wrestling with doubt. We talk deconstruction. Again, I'm going to get specifically into the definitions here in a minute, but we talk, we talk deconstruction in general. I think some people are just simply wrestling with doubt, and doubt is very different than the modern-day understanding of deconstruction. Doubt basically says, hey, covenant God, who I'm in a relationship with, it doesn't look like your covenant promises are coming true. I'm hurt. I'm confused. What do I do? This posture is all over the Psalms. It's all over the Old Testament. It's even in the Gospels. No doubt. Like, no doubt is celebrated, but it is owned and named and acknowledged that it is part of the human journey. Mark 9, 24, the classic acknowledgement of doubt from a father who is asking Jesus to heal his son. The father asks, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, Jesus, and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes, like have faith, if you trust me, if you trust me, we can do this. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said what? You remember? I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. This father humbly confesses his doubt, and Jesus commends him for it. There's no rebuke here. This is the person's like existential wrestling with their faith. It says, by the way, in the book of Jude, verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Somebody wrestling with their faith needs someone to sit with them and show them mercy. It requires humility. There are a lot of narratives out there. It is difficult to figure out how to make sense of reality in a large, complex, and diverse place where we have more access to information than ever before. Doubt, I think, is actually where a lot of people are at. Maybe you're at. You're not dismantling. You're just, you're just not sure about it, what's happening. Two, the second thing that people, I think, may be experiencing is the dark night of the soul. This often, usually, as far as I understand it, historically happens to folks who are uh, mature followers of Jesus. 
This is where God, in a desire to mature his people, withdraws his presence and activity in a way that they can't quite discern. This can feel almost like you've been abandoned by God, but it's actually a form of maturation. It's God drawing you deeper into his love and strengthening your faith by taking away like the pillars of his manifest presence. Like that, that oh my gosh, I would come and I would worship and I would feel that sort of warmth in my bones. God would speak to me when I would be in the scriptures. I'd be out on the surfboard or running or playing music. And that just sense as I'm like worshiping and the things that I'm doing or resting, I would sense God's presence. It's almost like this removal of that for a season. This can be painful. And if you talk to somebody who's been through a dark night of the soul, it's very different than deconstruction. You come out on the other side of this so much stronger. It is almost a gift and a grace where God removes those pillars to draw you deeper into the heart of God. Now, the third place is what I want to drill down into. There may be a genuine deconstruction, people of their faith, and then there's also, I think, something else. People genuinely dismantling their faith by asking, does my understanding of the way of Jesus actually line up with the teachings of Jesus? Does what I have inherited line up with what I read? It's almost like a disenculturation. And then there is also then something else. There is a sort of posture that comes from, I want to get to the truth, the truth about the way of Jesus and uncover what I've been handled. And then there is something that is more in the spirit of denial. We'll get to that in just a second. Why are we hearing so much about this? Why is this um, on the tip of so many people's tongue, this idea of dismantling and deconstruction? I think there are two reasons. One is philosophical and the other is chronological. By the way, this little bit here, I just, I'm greatly indebted uh, to a friend of mine. Uh, who just really has helped unpack this for me, actually a little community of folks. Um, so I, I want to just name that this has been stuff that I've been journeying with with some friends who have been far more brilliant than I am, um, unpacking some of this. And um, I would say on this journey in general, it's a great moment to point out just how important it is to be on the journey of dismantling, deconstructing, and understanding where we are together. So... Uh, in the, the chronological and philosophical sense, I want to give us a, a sense of where we're at. One, everywhere I read, the world, sociologists are talking about how the world is breaking apart. And by that, I simply mean social constructs that we have traditionally held are no longer valid. This isn't just like a generational thing. This is like a massive shift that we haven't seen in arguably three to 400 years, according to some uh, thinkers. Tradition, things that traditionally kept us together are no longer sort of valid. They're not valid, they're not valued. There's not a deep sense of us. There's a giant fragmentation that's happening in our world. And on the other side, there's the deconstructionist like philosophers like Derrida uh, that have made their, made their way into the academy back in maybe the 60s, uh, are finally making their way into the mainstream now. So this is deconstruction by way of its origin. Stay with me. It's really important that we have some uh, intellectual grasp on, on what, where this conversation stems from. Deconstruction in academia, first and foremost, it is concerned with countering the idea of any sort of transcendental origin. 
too, it, it, it's like destabilizing previously fixed categories of understanding. It's meant to be a tool. These aren't necessarily bad things out of the gate. Meant to be a tool to be able to break things apart and see the bits in a particular way of thinking, writing, whatever it may be. Deconstruction's not concerned with the discovery of truth or of distilling con correct uh, conclusions. It is the process of questioning itself. It's a process characterized, literally, Derrida would say, by uncertainty and indeterminacy. Again, if I've lost you, stay with me a little bit here. But it's incredibly important that we see this ideology that it's made its way into the mainstream that we don't actually see kind of pop up literally, but is the, uh, the bed underneath all of this is a system that it's, it's literally uh, its origin, its founders, the people who have written about it at the beginning said, do not build on this. It's not meant to be built on. It is meant to simply undo and for us to be able to see the parts. It's an ongoing process, Derrida writes, of interrogation. Deconstruction is neither analysis nor critique. It is not done with a particular aim. It is not a search for a core truth. It's not linked at all with any kind of reconstruction. Again, this doesn't make it bad, but as this has made its way out of the academy and into the world, it's sort of like the air we breathe, this sense of tearing down it all and not moving beyond that is what I, I would argue has caused paralysis and a number of other things. These ideas have found a moment in history where things are falling apart. So a philosophy that's seeking to explain that without a way to think and without repairing it. So when that's applied to something, for instance, like faith, it, it becomes very difficult to navigate. So you have people, especially younger people, who are just disillusioned about the state of the world that they were handed by older generations. And I think you have this just sort of, I don't know, Venn diagram, like a perfect moment for the popularization of deconstruction, because here is something that will help us at least be able to dismantle or try to find some kind of answer as to why the world's actually not getting better. The world was supposed to get better. We're supposed to be more just, more sophisticated, more enlightened. And if we look at the past century, we've seen arguably more genocide and ache and heartache. And, and I mean, I go down, a, it's a whole other sermon. But you can even just Google, I think there's a great essay in the Atlantic, about, is the world getting better? We just, I think, all are under this illusion that we have evolved. It's Dr. King's famous quote. It's like, we have, we have come up with the atom bomb and we still do not know how to love our brother and move beyond this sort of tribalism. What a perfect moment for an ideology like deconstruction that has no vested interest. Just a tool of academia suddenly becomes the air that we are breathing. The first thing that must be said about deconstruction is that there's a good kind. Every generation has had a need for it. This is the kind that you literally see in Jesus himself, who made a radical critique of the religious leaders of his day and the way that human traditions had been corrupted, had corrupted biblical truth. For instance, the amount of times in the Gospels, Matthew 5, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. This is not him dismantling the Old Testament. He's literally going after the Pharisees who missed the heart of the commands by all of their extra non-biblical laws and rules that were put in place by the Pharisees. Here's an example. How many of you are familiar with the term purity culture? Those of you who grew up in church. You have heard it said purity culture. 
But I say, man, sex is a beautiful gift between a man and a woman that is reserved for marriage. Now, you may be like, isn't that what purity culture is about? No. Purity culture is all, and from every woman that I know, specifically women who have walked through this, it's like the shame and the guilt and the heaping on of things that aren't found in the scripture that are meant to sort of create a, a very, very bizarre and, and, and broken culture around sexuality when Jesus is like sex was God's idea and Jesus is simply illustrating this is the beautiful place that sex is meant to thrive. You've heard it said, purity culture. But I say, let me show you, let me show you Song of Solomon. I don't know. <laughs> it's the deconstruction of the Hebrew, pro- Hebrew prophets, of the martyrs and the saints. The deconstruction of the reformers, many who died at the hands of religious Christian leaders. It has been said about Christianity specifically as unique among all secular and Christian uh, ways of thinking that one of its uniquenesses is that it is always self-correcting. Implicit in its very ideology and understanding of the world is prophetic critique. God comes to critique the very systems that have been corrupted where Jesus and others use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church. This is a sort of beautiful deconstruction. But then there is this other type of deconstruction that use the world to critique scripture's authority over the church. To quote John Mark Comer, the former is the way of Jesus, and we want to actually do that. It's what's caused us to rethink and reconsider tradition that has been passed down that wasn't faithful to the way of Jesus. Now, the second thing that we need to understand about deconstruction is that it is the middle of a process of maturation. It's like in the middle. It's not the end goal. So set aside even religion just for a minute and go back to developmental psychology one more time. Stay with me. Psychologists talk about a three-stage process in a person's development really clearly. It's Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. So these are just ways in which we as people grow. Stage one, construction. is Like this was your childhood family of origin. You were handed the building blocks of a particular worldview. You were handed like a way to see the world, the template. Hopefully it was good. Hopefully it was true. Hopefully it was beautiful. It probably was very black and white because that's how we are. That's how we are. Like, we, this is how, especially when we're younger, have you ever tried to nuance with like an eight, nine-year-old? It doesn't, have, it doesn't work very well. We think we know way more than we actually know at this stage. We think life is a lot more black and white and clear-cut than it actually is. And then we enter the stage, though, though we're, we're constructing a worldview. Two, then we are deconstructing that. So as an adult, you realize all the problems, issues with your worldview, things that you've inherited from your culture, from your background, whatever it is. You start to question that, probe that, and then you ask, okay, what has been corrupted by sin, by brokenness? What doesn't line up? What is not leading to a more just world? And you break it down. And then the third stage is simply reconstruction. As you rebuild a worldview, you have to actually figure out how to live and so traditionally, again, this is, this is not even talking about religion here. You do this based on the best wisdom of previous generations. Billions of people have done life before you. We don't need to start with a blank slate. 
We don't have to learn all of these lessons all over again from scratch. We don't have to destroy our lives, wreck our marriages, harm our bodies, destroy, destroy our nervous systems, capacity for intimacy, just because we want to like find out about ourselves. Other people have already made a lot of the mistakes. We have new mistakes to make. If we will humble ourselves, if we'll read, if we'll study, if we'll adopt, if we'll become just a student of humanity, the posture, right, going back to the way of Jesus of an apprentice is that we can be spared of so much pain. We can reconstruct a worldview based on the best wisdom of past generations. A quote I love to read uh, from, I love from G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. He says, tradition, that's what we're talking about, tradition. It means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who just happen to be walking around right now. So good. We reconstruct a worldview that we can own with humility and with wisdom and with conviction because we actually have to live. As the stage three is what uh, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur calls the second naivete. It's almost like what you see in a child where a child is just a little bit naive and happy, but, but it's on the other side of walking through the desert wasteland of modern skepticism. Like old and wise and experienced with scars having gone down the rabbit hole and been through the full gamut of emotions and you've come back to a new place of trusting and humble joy. I love that, a second naivete. Now, we live in a stage one and a stage two culture. There's very little stage three. There's a conservative version of stage one, right? Bumpers, how many came up, grew up with like a bumper sticker faith? Bible says, like, if I believe it, it that settles it. Like just missing one key element, you have to interpret the Bible. Doesn't allow space for doubt or questions or emotion or data points that don't align with your theological system. It confuses your interpretation of the Bible with the Bible itself. Then there's a progress progressive version of stage one. We see this all around us here in Providence. This is where you kind of, I don't know, you parrot lingo that's on trend of various ideologies. You unthinkingly accept ideas that are full of contradiction and bias just because everyone's saying it. Uh, just like conservatives, uh, and I'd say now more than ever, uh, progressive ideology does not allow space for doubt, doesn't allow space for questions. You're labeled a heretic and often shamed if you dare question certain dogmas. But overall, I think we're in a stage two culture. And by that, I simply mean a lot of people who move into deconstruction and realize you can only stay zealous for so long, only live in a perpetual breaking down for so long, and then you get stuck in a kind of limbo where you are more against certain things than anything specific, more doubt than faith, more skepticism than confidence. I think very few of us ever get to stage three. Stage three are these beautiful people. I have some friends like this who have like a deep conviction about God and scripture and reality and morality and have a high capacity to understand and engage just how strange, broken, confusing, and ambiguous the human condition is. High capacity for paradox with like deep humility and wisdom and compassion, but also with some burning conviction. So I say all of that, take a deep breath, 
All of that to say deconstruction is not the end goal. We need to realize that. It's the middle of the maturation process. If you're in that phase, it's a phase that you need actually to develop as a human, but you need to move through to transcend and include. Let me just say, if you're in that place of breaking and dismantling everything down, reach out. And let me say that as I say that, I'm like, reach out to a pastor, reach out to your home church leader. Let me acknowledge that the church in general has done such a crap job of holding space for those that are in this place. So often our fear and our ego, they, just, they come in and sometimes the church can react when people have doubts and questions when they push back or challenge authority. I'm just, I, I want to say I'm so sorry for any wrong that's been done to any of you. You felt like this wasn't a safe space or capital C church. I can just represent every church you've ever been to or faith community you've ever been a part of. They didn't feel like you could question or doubt. That church ego is a real thing. There is another way. I just want to encourage you to don't walk through the desert of modern skepticism alone. There's a whole tribe of us that are here in the desert, leaders in this very community that are walking through it. Let's walk through it together. And let's walk through it with some guides who have been through to the other side and who can come back and say, hey, there's an oasis waiting for you. Just keep walking. Or as the ancients used to say, keep the faith. Keep the faith. The last thing that needs to be said about deconstruction is that it's, it's just much more complex than some kind of orthodox, heretical, binary. There's not like a one-size-fits-all paradigm. Deconstruction um, has a couple different like access points. And I think I'm going to be really quick with this because this talk is really long. But I think it's really important to just see and to, for you to name and plot where you might be or where one of your friends might be. How do we enter into these stages? One, an external piece, is there's a kind of cheap grace culture or low discipleship culture in our churches. We're interested in making converts more than we're interested in making disciples. Let's be clear, Jesus asked us to make disciples. That moment of conversion and raising your hand at the end of church can be a powerful moment and a good moment, but let's not codify it as if it's something remotely clear in the Bible. We're not interested in discipleship. We have this sort of cheap grace. Two, the, the, you have the rising of secular ideologies, again, on both the conservative and progressive side that are kind of quasi-religions that attempt to replace the way of Jesus. And they're not just held by, like, intellectual elites. It's everywhere. It's in, like, our digital IV. It's, like, it's being educated into the school system, pop culture. I mean, and we see it especially. It's just capitalist marketing departments are, are, are just pushing and pushing and pushing because it sells. And then three, you have the tragic breakdown, like we talked about, of trust in spiritual leaders. How many stories can a generation take of scandal? When does all the trust in spiritual leadership get burned up? How on earth could you trust me? Just Google pastors, like, failing and page after page after page. So the external ways that you or others may enter into to deconstruction, naming what's happening in the world, low discipleship culture, 
aggressive secular ideologies, and then a lot of distrust. You can see how this could push somebody into these spaces. Now you have an in, a couple internal ones real quick. One, this is so uncool, but I'm going to say it. You have a lack of fear of God. There's a deep lack of the very fear of God. There's a generation that is just really thin when it comes to any sort of surrender to God's fierce love. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God. That won't bring in the crowd. You have a Christianity without a cross that has resulted in undisciplined people and undiscipled people that's coddled and given free reign rather than conquered by the Spirit's power. Then you have these digital inputs that are just saturated with everything but Scripture. There's a research group... um, they just did a report. The average Christian, the average Christian millennial consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content a year, only 150 of which is Christian. To be clear, that is a 20 to 1 ratio. This is really actually key to, to, to realize and understand um, because right, what you put your attention to, it's where your whole body kind of goes. What's the old line? Like you become what you contemplate. If your ratio of secular ideologies to Jesus' truth is 20 to 1, that's fine. Just do not pretend for a minute it's not going to have a corrosive effect on your faith. I'm really not making a judgment call. I'm just saying, like, don't. Don't even think for a minute you won't start to doubt everything if that's the ratio of your input. If your input is, like, 20 to 1 of, like, I don't know, apple pie to pumpkin pie, you're going to be making some apple pies. Just came up with that in the moment, clearly. <laughs> Finally, number three is an internal piece. There is a wounded heart. I know almost no one, and I have a pretty big pool of people who have deconstructed their faith who are not wounded by a spiritual leader, by a church, by, a, by, by some sort of Christian experience or by their family of origin. Maybe it was a mom and dad who they grew up Christian, but everything just felt backwards and painful. This sounds disconnected, but I see it all the time in our church. Singleness and loneliness is another wound. A lot of people that lead them into this place of deconstruction out of the pain of not being able to find a Christian spouse to go through life with. Or for others, it's just the pain and trauma of the right and the left's corruption of the church. Almost always behind this is there's some wounds some very real pain. And if I could just say this as tenderly as I can, in the last couple of years, nobody, no institution has wounded me more than the local church. It doesn't let me off the hook with Jesus. I still have to ask, what am I going to do with Jesus? And by the way, no one is just hurt by the Meta C church. You've been hurt by people. Somebody in church hurts you. Or you are going through pain and you attribute it to those people. But it's important that as you seek out just what's going on below the surface, you're honest about what's in there. So internally, there's a lack of the fear of God. There's a mind that's caught up with all the noise, the digital noise of the world. And three, wounded hearts that just become honestly easy prey for, the, for deception. Now for those of you who are like straight up deconstructing as we speak, this is not please hear this. Trust me. This is not an attempt to like label anyone. This is simply just trying to 
give some contours to understanding where that entry point might have been. This has been a testing year for all of our faiths. It's been really disheartening to see the corruption. So my appeal is from Paul. Don't let your heart be taken captive by the enemy. Return to the love of God. There's nothing better than the love of God. And be honest. Is your deconstruction an attempt to tear down your faith or is it an attempt to recover a truer, more beautiful one? And to the rest of us who are just trying to figure out like what it means to follow Jesus in providence, this is an appeal from Paul, from the scriptures, to guard your heart. Guard it. Keep watch. Don't go it alone. I honestly believe that we at Sanctuary Church are invited to a sort of courageous orthodoxy in this moment that for sure is going to make us a smaller church. Holding to the historic faith with joy and boldness and confidence in a time of widespread theological and ethical compromise. Harm. I don't want to be a harmful church, which means we need to be passionate and faithful about walking the way of Jesus. Paul, in that passage that we read as we kind of land here, though he says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, every bit of deception that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Paul calls out that these ideas and ideologies in our world are often animated by a deceiving power. And who is the deceiver in Scripture? I'd much rather just skip this part of the message because as soon as you start talking about the demonic and Satan, you start losing people. But as a preacher of the Bible, almost every time this stuff comes up, there is the deception and the devil and embodied in person of personified evil comes up again and again and again. Genesis, the beginning of the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. The deceiver. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Behold, first story of deconstruction. Did God really say? And Eve says what? No, 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 he, he did. He actually did. Eve, repl Eve replies, like, no, 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 he did actually say that. And then what, how does the deceiver respond? Yeah, but did he really mean it? Did he really mean it? Surely not. Let me read you this verse that's in the 2021 version of the Bible, i.e., I'd never read this before. I am afraid, Paul writes to the same church in Corinth, I'm afraid, he is fearful and concerned, that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray. 
from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Has anyone else been a little bit fearful? I find actually a lot of solace in knowing that Paul's afraid. I'm actually afraid that a lot of you are straight up being deceived. You're being actually led astray. You're not paying attention. You, 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 you're like staying in the rabbit hole of a Hollywood stigmata story and you're not going to the bookshelf. I'm actually concerned that you're being deceived, that you're being led astray, not from some broken, toxic Christianity, but he says, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is so concerned that he evokes the story because he knows this is how the story goes. It's been said about the story of Adam and Eve. It's not about the question of its literal truth. It's the reality that this continues to be true about humanity again and again and again on so many levels. The problem with deception, right, is that you don't know it's happening. So I don't expect one person in this room right now to be like, yeah, I'm being deceived. It's not possible. It's not possible until the eyes are opened. It's not possible until we realize how much we're being formed and we stop this charade of being autonomous, finding ourselves type people. Lastly, I want to end with this. There is this encounter in Peter's life that is very alarming. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift your faith. This is the beginning of a bad day. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail, that you will return and strengthen your brothers and sisters. Imagine like, just right now you're having like your devotional time and you just sense from God, like Satan's gonna ask to sift you. I prayed for you, don't worry, you're not gonna fail. Be terrified. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. There's this really interesting Greek word here, this word eclipo or klepo. It's where we get the idea of an eclipse. And what an eclipse is, in essence, is something that gets in front of the sun. And for all intents and purposes, from our vantage point on earth, it looks like the sun and the rest of the universe has completely disappeared. But it hasn't. Something has eclipsed the reality of the sun. I want to say often... What these ideologies do, what the deceiver does is he wants, what deconstruction often does is to put things in front of God and get it so close, to get the problem, to get the question, to get the doubt, to get the accusation so in front of your face that you can't see God behind it. Now here's the thing, right? In an eclipse, the sun didn't disappear. The sun's doing just fine. It is from your vantage point, it looks like the whole world has been blotted out. I think that's where many of us are, many of our friends are. That's where I've been. I'm so thankful. It says here that we have a God, a Savior who intercedes for us. Even now as we're being sifted as the church, we still have a Savior who is praying that we would persevere. I know what it feels like to think you're losing your faith. So I'm not speaking any of this with any judgment. I'm just saying I also know how faithful God is to carry us through.
So much of what we call deconstruction is just searching and seeking and questioning, which is what we're all called to do, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Get those things out of the way. Question, interrogate, embrace the season of doubt, but keep seeking and keep searching. Keep going. And you will be able to say what Spurgeon said. I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Christ Jesus. Amen? I'll be able to thank God for every shipwreck that wrecked me against, every doubt, every disillusionment that wrecked me against the rock and foundation that is Jesus. So church, draw near to God. Guard your heart and trust. Draw near, keep drawing near. Remember and draw near. Remember who and whose you are. Remember what God has done in the past. Remember that what brought you into the faith in the first place. And with a boldness without any fear, begin to draw near. I want to invite folks on our prayer team to come forward. I, I know this is a bit longer of a service than normal, but I, I want to invite us to take these last few minutes together for those that need prayer, both for themselves or for a friend, those that feel like on the brink of tipping, those that are in a place of deep doubt that is crippling your faith, those that feel like they're losing a marriage or a friend group, those who have felt just abandoned and exhausted, any folks who are on the prayer team or any other just leaders, home church leaders, would you come up and actually just line the front here? And I, I asked Taylor if she would lead one of, one of her songs to just help bring us into this space of considering the goodness of God and his power to redeem and restore and refresh. So before we close our time, Let's sit in this moment. Feel free to stay and just sing, or go to your knees or close your eyes as, as she leads us. But I wanna invite, I wanna invite those of you, I feel like there's people in this room who need to come forward in prayer. You need to own where they're at and just receive blessing and care. Would you come forward?